Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of reading your word, of hearing your voice, and knowing you through the revelation you've given us in the Holy Scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this morning, as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will guide us and help us to understand and know better your plan for us, each one of us, as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, yesterday you will remember that we talked about how um, commentators and Bible interpreters today are replacing the plain reading of the Bible with uh, readings that use different lenses in order to impose on the text particular agendas. And those are not things that I have uh, um, insisted on, um, but these were, as I quoted from the curriculum for a diverse America, they make it very clear that these agendas are, are being advanced. And the same is true with Scripture. We can't pretend that we are in a vacuum here. And so as we go through the Bible passages, beginning today with Genesis 1 to 3, which will be the topic that we will spend our time with today, we will first look at how a gender lens looks at the passage. Won't spend too much time on that, but enough time so you get the idea. And then we'll look at what the text actually says. Um, so, we want to pay particular attention today to how God created man and woman to relate to each other in the beginning, before sin, and also after the fall. How did the fall change their relationship, if any? Now, if we would look at Genesis 1 to 3 through a gender lens, this is what it would look like. Let's open to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Okay, even though the slide says Genesis 2, we're looking at Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1 Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, according to the gender lens, man here in verse 26 refers to both Adam and Eve. Because the, last, the second half of the verse says them. And that might seem logical at first. But let's think about what the implications of that are. So before the rib was taken from Adam's side, he was essentially androgynous. Meaning he was both male and female. Therefore, according to this lens, when God spoke to the man about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2... He was really speaking both to Adam and Eve. Likewise, according to this view, when God brought the animals to be named, he brought them to both the man and the woman in the person of this human being who named the animals. 
A gender lens reading also sees even an implied superiority in the way the woman is described. Because the man in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, um, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So he was formed from dust. And the word for man in Hebrew is Adam. That's, that can mean man or Adam, but in this case, Adam, he made man from the dust of the ground. And that's re related to the word for ground, Adama. You hear this similarity? Adam, Adama. And so based on this connection, a gender lens says that Adam could actually be uh, described as the dirt man. But Eve was not formed from the dirt. She was built, using a different Hebrew word, from Adam's rib, like a beautiful palace. So here you got the man who's kind of made of dirt and the woman who's built like a palace, structured and constructed from a rib of the man. The gender lens reading also observes that the Hebrew word used to call Eve a helper also refers to God as the helper to human beings. And this shows, they say, that Eve's helper role before the fall was very important. Also, according to a gender lens, Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil shows, you know, this is in Genesis 3 now, and the serpent is talking to her. She shows her intelligence and ability to reason and philosophize, whereas Adam is not involved at all. After the fall, things changed dramatically, and one consequence of sin, according to this gender lens reading, is that Adam would be domineering over Eve. This is supposedly the meaning of chapter 3, verse 16. And then, also according to this reading, by naming the woman, Adam is uh, domineering over her, and this was not according to God's plan. Since both the man and the woman were made in the image of God, the gender lens argues that a primary goal of the plan of redemption is to restore men and women to a relationship of equals. Now, as we look at what I've just described of Genesis 1 to 3, how many of you, for how many of you is that a familiar understanding of these chapters? Okay, I don't see, maybe one hand. Okay, or but most of us have never really thought of these chapters that way, I'm sure. At least when you read the chapters, you don't get this idea. At least most people probably wouldn't. So, where does it come from? Well, as we saw yesterday, there is a way of reading against the grain or resisting the plain or dominant reading of the passage. And they are uh, reading it in such a way to overthrow the usual understanding of, of the passage, Genesis 1 to 3. Now, not everything is wrong, obviously, that we, as I've described it. There is some truth here. After all, when Eve came to the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge, uh, you know, uh, it, it was not just a knowledge of evil, right? The tree of the knowledge of evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. You know, the, the devil um, 
wants to make sure when he presents his lies that there is some truth to it. And um, so the tree represents the fact that by taking and eating of it, it wasn't bad tree. The fruit wasn't bad. It was good, right? It was the taking of the fruit that was evil because God had said don't do it. So in that act, it's mixing good and evil. But the tree itself, according to all the other things that God said in Genesis 1, was good. It was good. It's just the, the violation of God's prohibition of taking the fruit that was evil. So likewise, when these readings, other readings of the text, not everything is wrong, but it's the mixture of the true and the false that make it difficult and confusing and really dangerous because it's enough truth and enough what sounds right to, uh, you know, like with Eve, you know, it looked good <laughs> for us to take it and start to um, accept it. And um, by the way, I should mention that when we talk about a plain reading of the text, the t question came up yesterday at the end afterward as well. And I'll try to leave time today also for questions and answers. Uh, we don't mean a surface reading of the text or a superficial reading when we talk about the plain reading. It, it means to look carefully and study the text, but to allow the text itself to speak, not to distort the text by superimposing an agenda that we might bring onto the text. We should not do that. So before we look at any text of Scripture, it's helpful to have a kind of bird's-eye view of the passage. And I think we know Genesis 1 quite well. Um, you know, the various days, various days of creation, day 1 uh, through 3, this is days of preparation where God is preparing the environment for the life he's going to create. So on day 1, he made light and separated from the darkness. On day two, he separated from the firmament above from the firmament below. On day three, he divided the seas from the dry land. And that covers verses three through 13. The first two verses, of course, being an introduction to God's creation. Then once the environment is created, God populates this environment with living creatures um, and with um, the you know, the, the sun and the moon on day four are uh, ordered uh, as ruling over the day and over the night. Um, and day five, the fish and the birds were made to fill the sea and the air. And on day six, the animals and man and woman were made to live on the land. That takes us through to the end of chapter one. Then in chapter two, the first four verses deal with the Sabbath, and then there's a kind of a concluding thought in the first part of verse 4, where in verses 1 to 3, God rested on the seventh day. He blessed it and sanctified it. I really appreciated, by the way, what Elder Bohr brought out about that, that, that some, some new ideas, and uh, I just, I think it's very helpful to see how the Bible and the spirit of prophecy fit so neatly together, even where we haven't noticed it for a long time on such a familiar passage. You know, that's an interesting thing for me. When you dig into God's word, the deeper you study, the clearer it becomes and the more things fit together. That's, for me, an evidence also of the inspiration of the Bible. Well, let's look more closely now at these key verses, beginning with Genesis 1:26, where it says that uh, God made man 
in, he says, let us make man in our image. By the way, um, that is significant that God speaks there in plural, let us. And so you have hints of the, the uh, idea that God is three persons in one God in Genesis 1, of course, also in Isaiah 6, where he's called and God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And, you know, you have hints of the, of the biblical view of the Trinity as distinct from the theological sort of doctrine through Christian history that has Greek philosophy as, at its base. We don't believe that, but we do believe in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, we have that beginning right here in Genesis 1.26. It's clarified, by the way, in the New Testament because when Jesus comes as the second person of the Godhead and he sends later the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead, we need to know that God is three, not just one. And that's why God reveals those things in the New Testament when they need to be known. We need to know who the Savior is when he comes. That it's not just an angel, but it's God himself. That was... Um, a little extra. I, I, some, I, I want you to be clear of where we're going here, and I'm sorry for the digression, but there have been many questions that have come to us at BRI about the Trinity, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to just clarify that a little bit. But coming back now to 126, let's look more deeply at this. I mentioned already that the word man in this verse is what? What's the Hebrew word? Adam. Adam, and it um, can mean uh, also Adam. So you have the word Adam, meaning man or mankind. Here we would probably translate mankind. Or Adam, the name of the first man that was created. And those are the, really the, you know, so you have Adam, man, and mankind. Those are really the only three ways to translate that word in Genesis 1 to 5. Adam, man, or mankind. And I say mankind rather than humankind for obvious reasons because you, you hear Adam, it means man, and also means Adam. This is the way it's described in Genesis 1:26. Let us make we could say mankind, Adam, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, etc. So this is one of two generic uses of the word Adam in Genesis 1 to 5. The second one is in Genesis 5 verse 1. So let's just turn there right now. And they kind of form bookends for these first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 5 verse 1. Notice what it says. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam, Adam. In the day that God created man, or you could say mankind, Adam, it's the same word. He made him, so again, it's not referring to to. Adam and Eve, right? It says, in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So him is a reference to mankind in general. 
not to specific human beings. He created them, verse 2, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind, again, the word Adam, in the day they were created. So I point this out because some people, as I mentioned, want to kind of particularize the word Adam here in verse 26 to suggest that really it's both Adam and Eve in the person of the first man as some androgynous human being. And that's not the intention of the Bible at all. Where is um, Eve in Genesis 5 verse 1? Do you find her anywhere there? Genesis 5 verse 1? No. In verse 2, you have male and female. So there is where we find Eve, when God created them male and female. And that's the same as we find in Genesis 1. It's simply repeating what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 have to say. Just like we don't see Eve until verse 2, we don't really see her until verse 27 in chapter 1, where it says, God, so God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, of course, mankind generically includes all human beings, man and woman. In other words, we're all made in the image of God. And then in verse 27, he, it's particularized as male and female. So human beings, in Genesis 1.26, notice, are given dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle. That refers to all human beings, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us. Uh, in the beginning, intentionally by God, we're given dominion over the creation, over the animal world. And verse 28, it's repeated. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is a general description of what God has entrusted to us as human beings, and that we are made in his image, and that we are created male and female. Now that's very important to emphasize that God made human beings male and female in the beginning. Number one, that means he made them different. And there's nothing wrong with that. And as Adventists, we have a holistic view of the person, of the human being, meaning we're not just what our body is, right? As if the body dies and there's a soul inside that goes to heaven when we die or somewhere else. But we're a whole person. And that means that as a male or as a female, we are a whole person. Our physical, our mental, and our spiritual uh, um, natures all are given characteristics according to our gender. And we relate to God accordingly, and he relates to us accordingly. It's nothing bad. It's the way we were made. Nothing wrong with being different. Number two, it, male and female, it shows that they're complementary. And, of course, the most obvious way in which we're complementary is on a physical level, but I think it's um, at least many of us who are married realize that um, it's nice to have um, a companion who is complementary to us. I learn a lot from my wife, and she learns a lot from me. And we help each other. We're a team together. We're stronger together than we were ever separately. 
And even maybe children can recognize this. If, you know, you have a brother and a sister, maybe they don't always get along, but they can also play together and be happy together and maybe do things, you know, um, together, two or better than one, the Bible says. And, and so this complementary idea is something that's very important for us to recognize. Being equal and being complementary are not incompatible with each other. They're not contradictory they help each other, they, they are uh, the way God made us. Let's notice one more thing about verse 27 here, Genesis 1:27. The text refers to male and female in that order, okay, right? God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So the order is important. It's the same order we find in Genesis 2. First, God makes the man, and then from the man's rib, God makes or creates the woman. The clear order in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is the male is created first, and the female is created next. That creation order is very important, and Paul points to that later, and we'll look at that on Thursday, when, or Wednesday, when we look at... Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. No, yeah, we're looking at that tomorrow. 1 Timothy 2 and 3. So we'll look at that more, more in detail. Um, by the way, when we talk about um, this creation order, you know, there's been a lot of exaggeration of the idea of headship as if it's some kind of recent and uh, dangerous theology that's only come in in the last few years within the Adventist church. Well, we'll see tomorrow that that's not the case, first of all. It's a very uh, old idea, and it wasn't original with our pioneers, but our pioneers also believed in the idea of headship because it's biblical. Christ is the head of the church, right? I don't know of anyone who doesn't believe that. Do you? Do we all believe that Christ is the head of the church? Yes. Is there anyone who doesn't believe that? I don't see any hands. So that means headship is biblical. Now, uh, having said that, it also says more about that in, in um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where it refers to um, the head of every man is Christ. So, in a special sense, we follow Christ as, as men. And the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's a, a system of headship that is spelled out in those verses. We'll look at that on Thursday more carefully. I'm, I'm, I wanted to bring this out just so you know kind of what's coming next. And that, because uh, there might be some as I'm going through here saying, well, yeah, but what about this and what about that? So I'm, I'm hoping that this will be helpful to you. So the clear order of creation, creation order in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is male first and female next. Now, when we look at Genesis 2 then, it focuses specifically on the creation of human beings and their relation to each other. So let's look at that now in more detail. And again, I'll give a bird's eye view, kind of an overview of the chapter first. We have in um, Genesis 2 what really is part 2 of the Genesis creation account. Part one is the first, about the, what happened on each of the first 
of the seven days of creation week, and then that order male and female is unpacked in Genesis 2, where God focuses on the creation of human beings in his image. So uh, the, it introduces this uh, section of the creation account by saying that the earth was created with no edible plants, and there was no rain, and there was no man, no human being. Um, Genesis 2 verse 7 then begins with the creation of man, um, and then he's created, and a garden is planted, and the rivers are divided. That carries us up through verse 14. And beginning with verse 15 through verse 18, there is uh, work and food, and the law uh, is given to man, and a helper is needed for him and promised for him. Then in Genesis 2, 19 and 20, Animals are named by man. And in verses 21 to 25, the woman is made by God. She's named by the man, and the couple is married by God. So it's interesting to me in Genesis 2, you actually have, like, also, if we just look at the whole chapter, beginning with verse 1, bookends, you have the Sabbath, which is the institution specifically made for man, according to Jesus. The Sabbath's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the first institution begins Genesis 2, and the second creation institution of marriage and the relationship between man and woman at the end of Genesis 2. So you see how, how like bookends, you've got uh, the two creation institutions related to each other. It's important to um, mention that the title man, Adam, occurs 16 times in Genesis 2. And everywhere in this chapter, it refers to Adam. It never refers to Eve or to human beings in general. It always refers specifically to Adam or the man. The only other Hebrew word in Genesis 2 is ish. And it's used exactly twice in verse 23 and 24. And both times, it's used in order to define the woman in terms of the man. Because in Hebrew, the word woman is isha. See the relationship? Ish is man, isha is woman. And if you look at the English words, it's very much the same. You've got man and woman, okay? So it's, they're related, just like the Hebrew words are related. And... Um, Actually, the English usage until recent years was almost exactly parallel to Hebrew usage of these terms. It's only in recent years that that's been kind of broken apart. But the connection of, of the English language with the Bible language is very interesting. So let's look at verse 23. Um, there Adam is... Um, speaking, we'll, we'll look at it in more detail, but he calls um, her woman, it says, because she was taken out of man. This, this refers to the nature of human beings, uh, how they are in terms of nature. And verse 24 refers to them in terms of relationship, and that man is to take the initiative by leaving his father and mother and uniting to his wife. 
But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's go back now to verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So he first created man, Adam, then he planted a garden, Eden, and placed Adam there to labor and care for it. Next, God gave instructions regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the man. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then God brought the animals to Adam and entrusted him with naming them in verses 19 and 20. And we won't take the time to read that. But you see, all the way through, the text refers to the man and the responsibilities that God gave to the man. And this shows that he is considered by God the leader of the human family. Now, how was Eve created? From a rib of the man. And that's given in verses 21 and 22. Notice, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So that was the first surgery. Then... The rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. I like how patriarchs and prophets describes it. This really, you know, the fact that that it was from Adam's side, from a, a rib was taken from him, shows the equality also of the man and woman. So in Genesis 1:26, it shows their equality by being made in the image of God. In Genesis 2, it shows their equality by being made from the side, woman being made from the side of the man and their closeness in that respect. Uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46. Eve was created from a rib uh, from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relation. Isn't that beautiful? I like how it says that she was his second self. Um, You know, my wife and I, uh, over the years, have, have drawn so close together that sometimes we'll even just come out out of the blue, saying the same words exactly at the same time. And when our daughter saw that the first time, she said, that's scary. <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, that's the beautiful thing about marriage. You know, you draw closer and closer together, really one, as God says. She was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relation. Of course, referring to the marriage relation. Now, how is Eve described? In verses 18 and 20, it uses the word ezer, kenegdo, for Eve. It means a helper comparable to him. Ezer, kenegdo. This shows that what God's design for Eve was, that God intended Eve to help and assist Adam. And the word help, ezer, 
is used not only for God helping his people, but also for humans helping other humans. In fact, it's usually help given to a superior, although in this case we have equals, Adam and Eve. But notice in Joshua 1.14, won't take the time to look at it, but I'll just list a few examples here. Joshua 1.14, two and a half tribes helped the larger segment of Israel, that is uh, nine and a half tribes, conquer Canaan. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 17, Abishai helped David against the Philistines. Again, subordinate helping the king. In Ezekiel 12, 14, the helpers and troops of Jerusalem's prince would be scattered. So in all these cases, it refers to human beings helping other human beings and actually helping uh, a you know, subordinate helping a superior. Now, that's not the case here in Genesis 1 and 2 because for the reasons I've already indicated, but it doesn't indicate any uh, uh, superiority of one over the other, even of the man over the woman. That's very important to make that point. Just because one helps another doesn't mean the work of the one is inferior to the work of the other. And it's important, obviously, because God mentions it twice, once in verse 18 and once in verse 20. And he says, I will make, in verse 18, I will make a helper for him. So for Adam, Eve was created as a helper. And in verse 20, after Adam has finished naming the animals, the text notes that even though all the animals were there, there was no helper for Adam found among them. Now, the word kenegdo is very interesting. It means comparable to. The helper, Ezra kenegdo, helper comparable to Adam. That word, kenegdo, literally in Hebrew means like, opposite, him. It's one word, but it's like three words in one. Like, opposite, him. So, it means the woman is like Adam, but she's also opposite of Adam. And... um, it's, it's, uh, there's a close relationship that it indicates between them. So they're equal in the sense of nature and value and complementary. Eve is complementary in function to Adam. All of that in that one word, kenegdo. Isn't that interesting? Then uh, when Eve is brought to Adam by God, verse 22, he names her, he calls her woman. She's clearly very special because this is, notice in verse 23, the first time we hear the man speaking. And in the, if you have a, a Bible that has paragraph form, like my Andrew's study Bible, you'll see that verse 23 is indented, which means it's poetic. It's, it's a poem. And so when Adam speaks, he speaks in poetry, Hebrew poetry. He says, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam, just so amazed and enthralled with the woman that he breaks into poetry and he calls her woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the word call there, by the way, in Hebrew is kara. And it's the same word that is used in chapter 1. If we look at chapter 1, verses 5, let's start with verse 5. It says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And in verse 8, 
it says God called the firmament heaven. And then in verse 10, it says God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. So the same Hebrew word, kara, is used in these three verses, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, 8, and 10, as is used here in verse 23. So when Adam called Eve woman, he was describing who she is. And uh, how she was made. Isha was taken out of Ish. So they're related. It underscores their difference and yet also their complementarity. They're complementary to each other. Eve was like Adam in nature, but opposite in gender and complementary in function. Now, according to the gender lens, let's just briefly look at verse 23 and 24 according to the gender lens because it's important. God speaks actually in the last half. So you have, uh, it, it actually, according to the gender lens, Adam speaks only in the first half. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, period. Now God chimes in, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now that's not the way actually the translation understands it because uh, in the New King James Version and modern versions, it's one continuous poem. And in fact, the second half of the verse is synonymous parallelism with the first half. It's Hebrew parallelism, synonymous. The first half and the second half are synonymous. One, the second half describing in different words what the first half said. And so it's a uni unified poem, actually, in Hebrew. It makes no sense to consider two different speakers here, as the gender lens people would like us to think. The reason, of course, they want that is because they realize if Adam is speaking this and calling Eve woman, that gives him a leading role. And they can't have a Adam can't have a leading role if she's if Eve is equal to Adam. If there's somehow one is a leader and the other is a helper, that means that one must be subservient and inferior to the other. And of course, that's not the biblical view. But according to the way people think nowadays, that's the way it is. And so they have to insist that the second half of this verse is spoken by God rather than Adam, even though the very first words of verse 23 are what? And... At who? Adam. And Adam said. Okay. I don't know how it could be clearer. I don't know how it could be clearer. Adam said. So he spoke this poem. There's no hint at all here that God spoke the last half of the verse, nor is there any hint of it anywhere else in Scripture. But when we come to verse 24, there's a clear change. Again, if you have a Bible that has paragraphs, you'll notice that verse 24 is not indented. It means it's not a poem anymore. It's prose. So from verse 23 to verse 24, we move from poetry to prose. And also, there's a difference in terms of um, the subject. It's no longer about Eve, but about man and leaving father and mother to be joined to his wife. So it's about marriage. So there's a change of topic. And so this, these two differences, 
suggests that there's a change of speaker also in verse 24. It's no longer Adam speaking. And we know that's the case, in fact, because Jesus tells us that. If we look at Matthew chapter 19, turn, turn to, with me to Matthew 19, I think we'll see this very clearly. Jesus quotes both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in answering a question about divorce. The question, verse 3, from the Pharisees was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his, life, his wife for any, just for any reason? Verse 4, he, Jesus, answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning? Now, who is he? God. So he, God, made, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. That's Genesis 1, verse 27, that we've just looked at. And verse 5, and said, so who's speaking? God is speaking. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, God is speaking in Genesis 1.24, and he's actually putting them together. He's marrying Adam and Eve. Isn't that beautiful? God performed the first marriage ceremony in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the words of, of uh, consecration of the marriage were here in verse 24 that we've just read. Now, in our sinful condition, it's hard for us probably to imagine the relationship that Adam and Eve had with each other before sin existed. But each one perfectly related to the other, perfectly uh, helped the other, and um, gave joy and happiness to the other. It was a relationship of two harmonious equals before sin. One as leader and the other as supportive helper. But that comes very quickly under attack in Genesis chapter 3, where the man is absent, and for the first time, the woman takes the leading role. And uh, so in, we won't, we'll skip over maybe the exact uh, um, outline of the chapter. I think it's familiar to us. Um, but notice the serpent's question she, uh, in verse 1. Genesis 3 verse 1, the serpent talks to Eve as uh, she would, as if she were the head um, and representative of the human family. It says, by the way, that of course the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, and which God had, Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has not has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's relating to Eve and speaking directly to her. That's made very clear because it says that he said to the woman. He wasn't speaking to Adam, and Adam is nowhere here found in, in these verses. Um, I might explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But notice the woman's response. She accepts the role given her by the serpent and acts for the, as the spokesperson of the human family. She says, 
what? What's her first word? We. We. So she's speaking not only for herself, but she's speaking for Adam also. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. She also restates God's command, but she adds to it. Notice in verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, quote, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Unquote. Now, is that what God said? Not exactly. It's something like what God said. Notice what Ellen White says in the book Confrontation, page 14. Eve had overstated the words of God's command. He had said to Adam and Eve, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In Eve's controversy, still quoting, In Eve's controversy with the serpent, she added, Neither shall ye touch it. Here the subtlety of the serpent appeared. This statement of Eve gave him advantage. What gave the serpent an advantage? Very important. Adding to God's word. It's adding, changing God's word or changing the meaning of God's word that gave the serpent an advantage here. This statement of Eve gave him advantage. He plucked the fruit and placed it in her hand using her own words. He hath said, if you touch it, you shall die. You see no harm comes to you from touching the fruit. Neither will you receive any harm by eating it. Unquote. Confrontation, page 14. Very important that we don't change or add to or take away from God's word as we looked at this morning or yesterday morning from Revelation 22 that's underscored in the spirit of prophecy. Um, because once God's word was changed and its meaning changed, it was easier for it to be contradicted. I'll say it again because it's very important. Once God's word was changed, its meaning was changed and it was easier for it to be contradicted. Because once it's changed, it's no longer the same. It's no longer all truth. There's some error mixed in. And when truth and error are mixed together, it may look more attractive to sinful human beings. But like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not only good anymore, but it can be used for evil. So we find in verse 6 the woman's um, acceptance of it. And notice the focus is on her, that she does everything. There are four specific actions that are described in verse 6. She reasons, okay, she saw it was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. That's the first. So she reasons to a decision. Number two, she takes of the forbidden fruit. She took of its fruit. Number three, she eats it. And then in verse seven, or sorry, at the end of verse six, she also gave to her husband, to the man, with her, and he ate. So it, he gave it to, she gave it to Adam. And interestingly, um, in Genesis 2, it describes the woman as being with him or for him but here 
It now, so in other words, the woman is described in terms of the man. In Genesis 3, it's changed. It's, it's reversed. Now Eve has taken the leading role. She's taken the fruit. She's eaten it. She's given it to Adam. He's eaten it. And she takes the initiative, and he's described in terms of her. She gave to the man with her. That's very interesting. The total, there's a total reversal of roles, a total reversal of the principle of creation order leadership that God had established in Genesis 2. The woman ate the fruit and gave it to the man. And he ate it. He accepted that change of role. And it's interesting, we're kind of running out of time here, so I'll just skip down to, um, you know, the fact that in verse um, 9, when God calls to calls out, he calls specifically to Adam. It says in verse 9, the Lord called to Adam or to the man and said to him, where are you? And the word you in Hebrew is masculine singular. It refers specifically to Adam. Where are you? And so God initiates a conversation with Adam. And this is like an investigative judgment. We could go on through each stage of this questioning process, an investigation process. But at the end, then, God pronounces a judgment upon Adam. And all of this emphasizes the man's surrender of his leadership responsibility as the first step. Notice when the judgment is pronounced. Notice what God says. This is um, in verse 17. Because Then to Adam, he, that is God said, because you have what? Heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree. Notice he didn't just say, because you've eaten from the tree, which I told you not to eat of. He, he says more than that. And it's important that God actually prefaces it with this first phrase. Because you have heeded the voice or obeyed the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, singular, saying you shall not eat of it. So rather than obeying God, he has listened to and obeyed his wife. This is... This is the, the tragic result in Genesis chapter 3. And then, of course, the final sentence in verse 19 is pronounced. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is picked up on in the New Testament, this role of Adam in Genesis 3 as giving up his uh, role of leadership in the garden by referring to um, Adam in verse, uh, Romans 5, verse 12, through one man, sin entered the world. And it refers in verse 14 to the transgression of Adam. In verse 15, by one man's offense, many died. In verse 17, Romans 5, by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. And verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So obviously, it's Adam's 
decision that is here focused on as the key um, to, uh, that opened the sin into the world. And that's why, by, uh, as that's why uh, Paul also underscores it again in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just look at that briefly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. It says, Paul says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And that's why we call Christ the second Adam. Um, he's referred to as a figure of the one who was to come, Adam is. Uh, uh, he's a type of Christ. Christ is the new, uh, kind of initiates a new human race through born of the Spirit and redeemed by him. So that's why when we believe, we are now in Christ rather than in Adam. Notice it does not, Paul doesn't refer to Eve at all in those chapters, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. We didn't need a second Eve. A second Eve could not save us. Only a second Adam could save us. Um, I, I'm just really out of time. There's a lot I could say, but let me just say one thing more. The separate roles for Adam and Eve that existed before the fall and this differentiation of roles is not something that the fall created. It, it was already differentiated before sin entered. And that's shown by the fact that both before the fall and after the fall, the roles remain the same. The only difference is, and I think Elder Gallimore has made this point very clearly, that sin inflicts pain and suffering. It injects, as he says, pain and suffering into these roles, which before held only joy. Before the fall, the man was to tend and keep the garden. No problem. After the fall, he would toil the ground with sweat and thorns and thistles we brought forth. Before the fall, the woman would be fruitful and bear children without pain. But afterward, it would be difficult conception and childbirth would be with pain. Uh, before the fall, the man and the woman would have a godly rule over creation, Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Afterward, after the fall, the man and the woman would struggle to rule over creation. It would be a challenge, a battle, and enmity would be placed between the serpent and the human family. In terms of leadership, Man, as we saw in Genesis 2, was given the leading role and the woman a supportive role. Afterwards, in Genesis 3.16, the woman's desire would be for, or it could even be translated against, her husband, the man, and the man would rule over the woman. But that rule is not necessarily negative. The same word for rule, mashal, in Hebrew, in Genesis 3.16, is used of the way the sun rules over the day and the moon rules over the night. So there's nothing evil about that. That was instituted by God. Nothing wrong with that. But the change is the struggle. Uh, and the same is true in marriage. Harmonious before the fall, afterward a struggle for rule and subjection of the woman to promote harmony. 
Um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 59, describes it. Eve had been perfectly happy by her husband's side in her Eden home, but like restless modern Eves, she was flattered with the hope of entering a higher sphere than that which God had assigned her. In attempting to rise above her original position, she fell far below it. A similar result will be reached by all who are unwilling to take up cheerfully their life duties in accordance with God's plan. In their efforts to reach positions for which he has not fitted them, many are leaving vacant the place where they might be a blessing. In their desire for a higher sphere, many have sacrificed true womanly dignity and nobility of character and have left undone the very work that heaven appointed them. Those are words that would be good for us to think about in this context. Well, I have to conclude. It's, as I said, difficult for us to imagine what it's like in a sinless world before the fall and the harmonious relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and between them and God. But clearly, it was a perfect relationship and a perfect creation order of leadership that was established that was sinfully reversed through the fall and through Adam and Eve eating in the Garden of Eden, the fruit that God had forbidden. These fundamental principles from the Genesis creation account then lay the foundation as we turn to the New Testament, and we'll look at that tomorrow, at what the New Testament has to say, and the rest of the time, actually. We'll look at... uh, Um, the plan that God has for men and women uh, in the New Testament and then uh, tomorrow and then 1 Corinthians 11, 14 we'll look at on Thursday and Friday we'll look at women in the Bible. So that kind of sets out the rest of the course that we'll have the rest of the week. I want to leave, I think there's maybe time for one or two questions here in the front. My question is uh, Genesis 3, 16b, where it says um, when God is talking to the woman and he says, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband. And then when you look at Genesis 4, verse 7, he's talking to Cain and he is saying, um, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. I just wondered if you would be able to correlate those two. Yeah, those are very uh, closely related verses. Actually, in Hebrew, the construction is almost identical, where you have uh, God in Genesis 4, verse 7, encouraging Cain that uh, sin's desire is for him, but he must rule over it. And so the same construction is here in Genesis 3.16. You're actually, uh, it's actually in Hebrew very close. You're right. Um, Uh, that uh, Eve's desire would be, not that there's necessarily any, uh, I mean, it could be uh, this struggle, as I suggested, you know, a a desire for supremacy. It's not further defined, but there's a hint of that. And then um, the assurance that he would rule over her. Not in a, it wouldn't necessarily need to be a, a, a kind of subjection or a negative sense. As I said, the word rule, mashal in Hebrew, can be uh, neutral or positive. And so it depends on whether the man is following Christ as his head. That's the ideal. 
And in that kind of ideal situation, which we all strive for as, as men and in the home, um, our relationship with our wives would be one of, of harmony and um, servant leadership. That's really, I guess, all the time we have. I, I, I appreciate that question very much. I just, I see some people moving and getting restless, so I don't want to keep you any longer. Let's just close with prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. And as we delve into it more deeply, we see the harmony through and through, not only in the chapters of Genesis that we've studied, but also in the New Testament and how the New Testament builds on your word in the Old Testament. So help us to see through these days more and more clearly your word, your role and and, uh, uh, plan for us and how we can relate better to you and to each other, we pray. Dismiss us now with our ble- your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.